Welcome to What's Up Wednesday. In these short episodes, I will summarize a recent study or journal article related to obesity management and discuss how to incorporate this latest science into your clinical practice. And of course, I'll be sure to include links to the articles in the show notes. So let's jump in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Gaining Health Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about an obesity medicine position statement on compounded peptides by Angela Fitch, Anthony Oriyama, and Harold Bays. This was published in Obesity Pillars on March 29th, 2023, and I will, of course, include a link to this article in the show notes today. So as all of you are aware, medications like Ozempic and other GLP-1 agonists such as as Wegovy, which both of which, as you know, are the medication semaglutide, and medications like Munjaro or Terzepatide, which is a new combination of GLP-1 and GIP, have been in the news and on social media like crazy lately. You really, you can't watch an award show or a late night talk show without somebody making a joke or making a comment about these medications. And we've seen celebrities and reality stars, many of whom would not medically qualify for these medications. And they've been taking to social media to share their experiences with these medications for the purposes of weight loss And again, oftentimes this is not necessarily medically necessary weight loss. And we've also seen supposed experts like Jillian Michaels, who last time I checked does not have a medical degree, and they are sharing their thoughts and concerns about these medications as well. And phrases like ozempic face and things like that are all over social media. And so it's pretty insane out there about how much noise there is about these medications. And so I think that there are definitely positives and negatives that are coming out of this. So, you know, on the negative side, obviously many of some of the rich and famous people taking these medications are taking them without a medical reason for them, as in they don't have obesity and they don't have diabetes, and that's what these medications are indicated for. And they are taking them for cosmetic reasons. And that just contributes to this ill-conceived notion that these medications and that weight reduction in general is for cosmetic reasons, contributing to this diet culture and this obsession with thinness that we have, especially in our Western cultures. And as obesity specialists, we've been fighting hard against this viewpoint, you know, arguing that, of course, obesity is in fact a disease and that these types of medications are medically necessary for many people who are struggling with obesity, which, by the way, is, again, let's remember when someone has excess adiposity that's negatively impairing their health. And so also having people without a medical license sharing their opinions about medications is also not helpful and oftentimes can be harmful. And lastly, since there is no medication without risks and side effects, it's again so important that these medications are being used appropriately in the appropriate population. So I think those are some of the negatives, but I think there are some positives. I think on the positive side, all of the attention on these medications might be reducing some of the stigma for patients who have obesity to ask their provider uh, providers about some of these treatment options. 
And hopefully it would also force these clinicians to become educated on some of these medications and start using them more for patients who actually do qualify and would medically benefit from such treatments. So certainly the awareness of these medications has increased. And also this has increased the demand for these medications. And in a lot of ways, this is good news because prior to the development of these medications, only about 2% of people with obesity who qualify for medications are being prescribed anti-obesity pharmacotherapy. And if you compare that to diabetes, where 86% of people who qualify are being treated with some kind of pharmacotherapy. And while there are people on social media who do not need these medications, who have been sharing their experiences, there have also been a lot of people who actually do medically qualify for these medications who are now starting to share their stories. And I think that the stories of people living with obesity are not often heard. And oftentimes people who seek out care end up being very secretive and in some ways shamed for using evidence-based tools like medications or bariatric surgery because there's still so much stigma around using these tools to assist with weight reduction for people with obesity. And and somehow some of these evidence-based tools are considered shameful or considered cheating. So I'm hopeful that increasing the social acceptance of using evidence-based tools for obesity management is something that might come out of some of this social media attention to some of these medications. And again, you know, we want to treat obesity just like anything else. We don't shame people for getting open heart surgery for their cardiovascular disease or getting a joint replacement for their knee pain, right? And so it's just so important that we start viewing obesity and obesity treatments in the same way. So one issue, however, that's come out of this increased awareness and attention to these medications is a rapidly increased demand for these medications, which has resulted in medication shortages. And so with shortages of these medications and potentially the high cost due to limited insurance coverage of these medications, some compounding pharmacies have started making compounded semaglutide and other peptides, and some clinicians have started offering these compounded agents to their patients. And I've also seen a lot of online activity in online forums of clinicians who are starting quote-unquote weight loss practices using compounded semaglutide. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all about clinicians starting evidence-based obesity medicine practices. I mean, that's the whole point of why I started Gaining Health was really to provide a roadmap and resources for clinicians who want to start an obesity management program. But there's a big difference between a clinician with no training or experience in treating obesity and just simply starting a weight loss practice with compounded semaglutide versus a clinician who's been extensively trained in evidence-based comprehensive obesity management, starting a comprehensive program for their patients with obesity. But even for patients or for clinicians who do want to offer comprehensive evidence-based obesity medicine, we still do have a real dilemma here, both for clinicians as well as for patients. 
you know, what are we supposed to think about these compounded peptides? You know, are they safe? Are they effective? Is this something we should be offering our patients, especially if they don't have insurance coverage for the real deal? And what should we be telling our patients and our colleagues when they ask us about these compounded agents? Well, fortunately, the Obesity Medicine Association is helping us figure this out. So again, like I said, on March 29th, they released a position statement about compounded peptides. So that's what we're going to discuss today for our What's Up Wednesday episode. So to read their statement. So this is the Obesity Medicine Association's position statement on compounded peptides. They say, quote, The Obesity Medicine Association recommends that anti-obesity medications and their formulations undergo clinical trial testing for efficacy and safety via processes overseen by the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA. The FDA does not approve compounded drugs, and without their review, the FDA cannot assure that compounded drugs have the same safety, efficacy, and purity of FDA-approved peptides or medications that have gone through clinical trial testing. If compounded peptides are prescribed, then they should be legally produced by source companies whose identities are readily disclosed and who have documented manufacturing processes compliant with oversight by applicable regulatory agencies. Okay, so that is their position statement. And then they go into a little bit more background about compounding pharmacies and their purpose, which is that they can customize the formulation of a medication to fit a unique patient need that is otherwise not commercially available. For example, if somebody needed a custom strength or dose, or if they need to remove an ingredient that a patient may be allergic to, such as a certain dye or something like that or if they need to add flavoring or create an alternative formulation, for example, creating a liquid medication for somebody that has trouble swallowing pills. So these are the types of purposes that compounding pharmacies should be used for. And they also say that in some cases, compounding pharmacies may compound drugs during drug shortages. But that said, the creation of compounded drugs is not intended to allow pharmacists to mass produce, store, market, and sell replications of patented medications, okay? And in this case, we're talking about semaglutide and some of those medications, which currently are patented medications. They go on to say that before compounding an FDA-approved medication, the compound pharmacist must first have access to the FDA-approved medication. If the manufacturer of an FDA-approved medication does not sell its medication to the compound pharmacist, and if the drug to be used for compounding is produced by a pharmaceutical company that did not undergo FDA approval process, then the FDA cannot guarantee the safety, efficacy, and purity of the compounded medication. If the evidence suggests that the active drug was illegally manufactured, then the manufacturer of the FDA-approved medication may respond with legal challenges for patent infringement, especially if patients are harmed. And finally, 
Potential liabilities may exist to the clinicians who prescribe compounded drugs if evidence exists that the compounding prescribing was done outside of the standards of the FDA and or if the compounded drug caused injury. Therefore, before prescribing compounded medications, clinicians should secure evidence to support that the source of the medication and the pharmacist compounding the medication adhere to FDA standards, as well as evidence that patients were informed that compounded medications are not FDA approved and therefore and may therefore not have the efficacy and safety of FDA approved medications. Okay, so what they go on to say is that if obesity medicine clinicians and their patients choose to work with a compounding pharmacist, then the clinician should, one, ensure the compounding pharmacy and pharmacist adhere to the applicable state board of pharmacy and is complying with standards of UPS and CGMP. Two, determine if the compounding pharmacy is accredited. Three, verify safeguards such that the source anti-obesity medications and their formulations have undergone adequate clinical trial testing for efficacy and safety. And four, document that patients are informed that compounded medications are not FDA approved and may not have the safety, efficacy, or purity compared to medications produced by manufacturers who adhere to FDA standards. So in conclusion, the position statement states that in the interest of first, do no harm, the Obesity Medicine Association recommends that anti-obesity medications and their formulations should undergo clinical trial testing for efficacy and safety as overseen by the FDA, that the components of compounded peptides should be legally produced by source companies whose identities are readily disclosed and who have documented manufacturing process compliant with oversight by by applicable regulatory agencies, such as the FDA, for example, if the source component is a prescription drug, that prescribers and patients should avoid the use of compounded polypeptides from undisclosed sources. And lastly, that prescribers should be cautious of compounded peptides where the safety, efficacy, quality, and purity of the source molecule and their combination with other molecules cannot be assured. And at minimum, patients should be informed of potential limitations of compounded peptides. So I hope that gives you all a little bit more clarity and guidance on this hot topic. So please refer to the full article, which you can find a link to in the show notes. And lastly, just a reminder that there is a huge need for patients to have access to compassionate, comprehensive, evidence-based obesity care. And if you're a clinician who's had training and experience in obesity medicine, and you've been thinking about starting your own program or practice, I highly encourage you to do so. It will bring so much joy and fulfillment to you and your patients, and we need more and better access to this type of care. But I also don't want you to feel like you have to figure it out all on your own, because like I said earlier, that's why I created Gaining Health. And we can help you with a roadmap for your program, provide resources like editable templates for your EMR and forms for your patients, 
and amazing, beautifully designed patient education handouts and workbooks. So you really don't have to recreate the wheel on your own. Just go to gaininghealth.com to check out our resources for you. And uh, all right, well, that's it, what we have for this week. So thank you all for listening. And I'll see you back next week on the Gaining Health Podcast for another awesome interview with our beloved colleague all the way from Malaysia, Dr. Stephen Teo. I'll see you then. Thank you so much for joining us on the Gaining Health Podcast. Don't forget to review and subscribe. And if you really liked it, consider supporting us on Patreon. Lastly, if you need resources and tools to help you start an obesity management program, be sure to check out gaininghealth.com. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on the Gaining Health Podcast.